This was the week that the tabloids were reporting on the retailer Shoe Zone. Apparently, they've named Terry Boot as their next finance boss after his predecessor, Peter Foote, walked away from the role. And this is Boggle Docs. Hello and welcome to your happy place. We're that feeling that you get when you're allowed to have a coffee with a friend outside that you've not seen for months. But have you got some excuses lined up for people that you might not be quite so keen on catching up with? (laughs) We're here to keep you going during these difficult times as we take a more human approach at the medical world and learn something along the way. Boggle Docs is the podcast for GPs and other primary care professionals that's accessible to everyone. It takes the pulse of the nation by looking to the medical media and uses that information as a springboard to help you target your CPD. And all of this is aimed at giving us the heads up so that we might have an inkling of what might be on our patients' problem lists so that we know what we need to know. Please follow and rate this podcast because apparently that's really important for all the algorithms in the world of podcasting. And this week I'm joined by Dr. Nigat Arif, who you might know from this morning and from BBC Breakfast. So hi, Nigat. How are you? Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm excited that you're here too. So thanks for coming along. And um, for people that don't know you, and I can't believe that people might not know you, but if they don't know you, I wonder if you could please uh, maybe explain a little bit more about what else you do. Oh, gosh, I have so many hats, as, as lots of GPs do. As you know, Nick, I'm sure you've got lots of different hats that you wear. So I work as an NHS GP and primarily my interest as a GP is women's health and therefore I actually then um, produce a lot of uh, social media content. So you might have seen me on TikTok talking about all things menopause, women's Uh health, which I'm actually really proud of because when I started talking about women's health and the issues surrounding um, sometimes the health inequalities that women have experienced um, and that's across all cultures um, particularly when it comes to the menopause, everybody said to me, why TikTok? There's any young people who dance on there. What are you doing? Um, so I'm really pleased that actually now I think I've nearly got 80K followers and um, TikTok uh, recently showcased my platform as a trailblazing platform. So um, it's nice to have lots of doctors follow me. Um, because of my work on social media, I'm also working with the Halo Project, which is um, an initiative backed by the United Nations and UNICEF um, about vaccine positivity. The pandemic has made us uh, aware that lockdown is not a method that we can keep sustainable. So we need to make sure that we're vaccinated in order to keep the coronavirus out. However, there's some hesitancy around that. And so I've been working with the UN in regards to tackling that and bringing out information for particularly my ethnic minority communities in, in, in my language, which is Urdu and Punjabi. And then the other hat that I have is that I do, I dabble a little bit in, so in, in on media. So I'm the regular BBC Breakfast Doctor um, and This Morning Doctor. So I usually come in on a Friday, on a Monday morning uh, on BBC Breakfast, on BBC One, and just give an update to the audience about what's actually happening in general practice under COVID-19, because it, there's uncertainty all the time. Um, and then it's a bit more lighthearted on this morning. Usually on a Thursday morning, we talk about the latest headlines. So um, on the most important role, though, Nick, that I have, I have to say, is mum. So I'm mum to three boys, oh. and they are absolutely my bedrock of everything that I do so everyone always says to me how do you do everything but I think that being a mum has made you a multitask a lot and juggle and being parents um even though even those who aren't parents they know that they have to multi-juggle a lot of responsibilities but if my kids are okay and they're looked after and they're happy then all's great so they are my first priority and I would say my primary role at the moment and I'm loving it because my youngest is two so I I love watching him do little things and um, having a lot of family time under lockdown has just made all those little precious moments even more valuable and also the fact that you start to cherish those moments because you realize that they are only moments and they grow up very quickly Uh, unfortunately I've seen lots of my patients lose loved ones and so the uh, the finite life that we have um, is very acutely aware to me as a GP currently 
and and that um transcends into then how you treat your loved ones around you you just want to keep them a bit more closer and god what i would do to give a cuddle to my family members who i haven't seen oh, months and months exactly and i think that your stabling influence has been greatly appreciated by viewers both on bbc breakfast and on this morning and you can see it on social media because they're often posting on social media to say that they really appreciate what you do so thank you for what oh, you that's do. so think. kind that is so kind but i think the fact is is that um it's really lovely for you to say it's stabilizing but we need some form of stability and also if i'm completely honest i'm very much glass glass half full kind of person and so to be negative all the time at a time where there is lots of negative i mean it's a pandemic for goodness sake um is is a hard one to um uh, always come up with negative arguments against something because you're only trying your best we're all learning and that is the key thing that we forget. No one's been in a pandemic before. There is no expert who knows how you should be dealing and feeling through a lockdown. There is no expert of how you should be doing homeschooling. There is no expert on how you should be a GP in the middle of a pandemic. Yet we are muddling through. And I think if you keep that as your narrative to say, I'm still learning and I'm happy to learn. And then having some of those difficult conversations that have come about because of the pandemic, gender inequality, more deaths in black, Asian, ethnic minorities, Black Lives Matters, issues around women uh, not being able to access health care. So the rate of smear rates have gone down, uh, women feeling domestic violence. So uh, the, the amount of possibly hidden sexual abuse that's happened uh, in homes, uh, physical violence, the fact that, that we've got now what's known as a silent response that women can turn to. So if they dial 999, wait for an operator and then just don't say anything or want to say anything, but then dial 55 um, mm -hmm. and hang up, then the police will be around. Because, I mean, the fact that we've got all these services just shows how much vulnerability and underlying issues that we've had within our, within our community, which the pandemic just highlighted for us. Exactly. And I think what's been also lovely is is that, you know, you've dealt with some very serious, difficult topics um, um, in your media work. And yet you always manage to find a positive spin somehow, um, which I think is lovely to see. And I think the, the viewers find that reassuring. Um, I have a killer question for you. Uh, in your BBC Breakfast Cup, what are you drinking? Is that tea or is that coffee? <laughs> oh, tea all the way. God, who has coffee in the morning? That's horrible. <laughs> And how it, has to be up now. it has to be okay i am very particular about my tea so me and dan walker we have a thing that we we have like a tea club and we are very particular about our tea because he's a yorkshireman so he loves his yorkshire you know he he loves his tea and also he loves his eggs as well there's a whole story about egg club but that's a, that's another podcast maybe but we it has to be um boiled water in a pan because i'm pakistani and so it has to be punjabi tea and then you put some uh, cardamom pods in some fennel boil 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 with a tea bag and then i put a little bit of soya milk in boil it and then keep simmering it for a little while oh just the perfect cup of tea in the morning brilliant well i wasn't expecting that that's a very detailed answer i'll have to give that a go <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you. Um, so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about a drama series that's on the iPlayer at the moment. It was the Summer Smash drama last year, and it's called I May Destroy You. It should have won um, and be nominated for all the Golden Globes, um, but sadly wasn't. Um, so we're going to be talking about that in a few minutes. But first of all, it's time for the news headlines. <laughs> We start with the mail. Um, eating more than five a day is a waste of time. Uh, to Dr. Michael Maisie's surprise, this was the verdict of a new study. And what they're doing here is they are quoting uh, a study which is being done at Harvard Medical School. Uh, and it analysed da um, dietary data from two 30-year studies of 100,000 adults and pooled this with research on fruit and veg intake and death rates from 26 studies of 2 million people from 29 countries. And they found that compared with people eating two portions of fruit and veg a day, those eating five had a 13% lower risk of premature death from all causes, including a 12% lower risk of death from cardiovascular disease, a 10% lower risk of death from cancer, and a 35% lower risk of death from respiratory disease. Um, yet the, the reduction plateaued at five daily portions with no obvious benefit to be had from eating more. Uh, 
Uh, next, it's the express alcoholic fatty liver disease symptoms. A doctor warns of two of the earliest warning signs. That's all very dramatic. Um, so <laughs> here we go. Alcoholic fatty liver disease emerges when you drink too much uh, alcohol. A healthy liver can process about one standard alcoholic drink per hour, but any more than this and the toxins accumulate. A doctor warns of the earliest symptoms of the conditions. Um, and then it goes on to say... Um, Dr. Scott Thomas confirmed, for many people, fatty liver disease could point to signs of alcohol abuse or addiction. Who is Dr. Scott Thomas? Doesn't say. Um, scrolling down even further, um, it says here, alcohol, um, fat, alcoholic fatty liver disease is usually a silent disease with few or no symptoms. He verified, this doctor. Um, however, if you do have symptoms, you may feel tired or have some aches in the upper right side of your abdomen, the doctor affirmed. So those are the two symptoms. Um, yeah, seriously, those are the, the two of the earliest warning signs, very specific. Um, so I had to do a bit of searching rounds, and I found that the doctor, Scott Thomas, is actually the senior medical editor um, of the American Addiction Centers. Um, and they've got on their website, this is an article about alcoholic fatty, alcoholic fatty liver disease. So there's nothing wrong at all with the article. Um, and if you scroll down, when it goes to the bit about what is fatty liver disease, uh, it says here that um, alcoholic fatty liver disease is usually a silent disease with few or no symptoms. You may feel tired or have some aches in the upper right side of your abdomen if you do feel any symptoms. That's where they got it from. Those two lines became that headline. Okay. So let's have another bong. And um, <laughs> this is the final one. And it is uh, The Times. Teenage girls suffer explosion of ticks in lockdown. Uh, Tourette's symptoms of uh, swearing, twitching and yelping are made worse by publicity on social media, says psychiatrists. Um, so basically, this is talking about, it says how here, um, specialists at Great Ormond Street and the Evelina Children's Hospital in London have seen referrals for ticks nearly double since COVID arrived, mostly in adolescent girls. Uh, in an article in the Archives of Disease in Childhood journal, uh, psychiatrists describe an explosion of ticks, which they believe has been triggered by anxiety. A trend of posting ticks on social media has um, made matters worse. They say that um, sites such as TikTok reinforce um, and maintain symptoms. And they talk to um, Professor Isabel Heyman, who is from Great Ormond Street. She's a psychiatrist. She co-wrote the article. Um, and at the end of the article in The Times, uh, she says that uh, the symptoms will probably go away as quickly as they came. Um, and she says, of course, they need a careful assessment, but recognising that this may be related to the stress of lockdown is really important because the likelihood is that once things start getting back to normal, it's going to hopefully die down again. Um, and what I'll do, I'll post in the show notes, there are um, some resources from the um, website Tourette's Action, uh, and there's a PDF there, which I'll post a link to. And it's talking about habit reversal training. And this is a technique which um, is available in the NHS and it might well be used for some of these patients. And they are basically they taught some basic techniques to help them cope with the uncomfortable urge that they feel before a tick. It helps them to recognise that and it helps them to harness that with a completing response, which is often the opposite to what they might do as part of their tick. So if their, their tick usually jerks their neck to the left, then the completing response would be a, um, a movement that they do, which turns it to the opposite way. So hopefully that would then they would then hold it in that position until the urge to the tick has passed. And so that's the basis of that habit, habit reversal training. So Nagat, normally I would ask you at this point in time if uh, you'd seen a news headline that caught your eye. But I wonder if I could ask you about something that we featured on the podcast last week, which was on this morning a couple of weeks ago when you were um, talking about the home HPV screening swab test, uh, which has been sent out to some people that have missed out on their screening. Um, and I, um, I basically said that it was very good that you'd corrected the language because a lot of the media are talking about a home smear test. Um, and um, and I noticed that on the, the This Morning app that all the language was spot on, it all being properly properly done. Whereas on the NHS website, they still talk about a home smear test. Um, and um, I noticed that, that when Philip and Holly first asked you about it, they did talk about a smear test and you corrected them. So I just wondered um, regarding your input on that, how, how much was your involvement in that to actually get it right? 
So um, obviously being one of the regular doctors on this morning, what happens is that about a day before we get what are the, the big headlines that they wanted to discuss. And um, with my history, with my knowledge of uh, smears and women's health specialism, I said I really want to talk about these home smear tests that they are discussing in the PDA because it's very much clickbait and women want to click onto it and have a look, which is great, which I can understand the uptake, which they want to happen in the algorithm of social media. But I was really clear with the production team that we have to get the language right because the language is the most important thing because women will have what's known as HPV sampling tests, which is a swab test that you do at home and think that that is one way of getting their cervical cancer diagnosed. Actually, that is really not the case. And so when I did the show with Phil and Holly, it was actually done on purpose that they would refer to it as a home smear test. And I would then correct them being a healthcare professional. And this is where you get a difference between stories or written by sometimes even on the NHS websites who aren't healthcare professionals. But we have to get the language absolutely spot on because confusion forms. And this is where that we then sort of mislead the public. And when it came to putting up the social media stuff on the um, This Morning app and their website, um, we had a further discussion with the team and I said it has to be really spot on. And that's also because I work with um, Joseph Michael Trust and the Eve Appeal as well. And we are really passionate about making sure that we use the right terminology. So it's not the woman's flower, it is her vagina, it's her vulva that we're talking about. You're talking about the clitoris, you're talking about the labia majora, the labia minora. And these terms aren't commonly used in mainstream media, but they have to be. Because when a patient comes to see the doctor at the GP practice and they'll say to you, I want a smear test because, or, or I want to have a, um, I've got a lump on my flower. That doesn't make any sense to me as a doctor. I have 10 minutes. And so if you educate the population in the right way to begin with, then actually that makes my life as a GP really easy. I completely agree with you because I think if we can um, sort of get the message out there to our patients, things like a two-week wait referral, because the symptoms are so on door, aren't they? It's almost like they could fill out the form themselves if they knew what they were looking out for. And I think we should get there with the right information getting out there. Yeah, and terminology is really important. So in the fact that they kept on using the word smear, you need to differentiate between the fact that it's HPV sampling and what HPV is. And that is just a woman doing a swab at home and there's a direction through that. And it's Uscreen who are doing this amazing trial on 30,000 women who are the hardest to reach. And that's for various reasons. They're doing it in England only at the moment. So it's Tower Hamlet, ethnic minority community women, trans men, uh, non-binary individuals, uh, women who might have had a horrible trauma, perimenopausal women who might be suffering from vaginal atrophy, who aren't uh, taking up um, the cervical, the normal cervical screening process, which requires putting a speculum inside and then using a special brush which takes the cells off the neck of the womb which is the cervix and then sending that off to the lab so I think that this is where it, terminology and making sure that women understand um, exactly what the tests involve because we can only consent people if they know exactly what they involve and also if they've had a bad experience say from a smear and then they think oh it's okay but I can have HPV sampling well, actually, we know we're still missing it because the gold standard test is one particular test, which is a smear test. And that is done by a healthcare professional. I actually had women um, at the back of my interview this morning say, I'm so glad you actually showed the equipment because I didn't even know what a speculum looked like. I, did, I, I had these visions of having to put a device inside my vagina at home and getting my own cells because it's Lime. so misleading, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's... It just shows the importance of, of demonstrating it, doesn't it, um, for people to see, because it just takes that fear away. And then it makes it much more likely they're going to do that test. And also as healthcare professionals, what's bread and butter to us is not bread and butter to the rest of the public. And that is something I've had to learn time and time again. And I've had sometimes where I've really put my foot into it. So telling a patient, oh, you, you've got diabetes, but this is OK. This is a, a regular. But that's a life changing diagnosis for them. Um, if you're talking about something, I mean, I talk about women's health a lot, but for them, it, it, it can be life changing. And so it's really important to demonstrate, to show what it is, to have that empathy, because they're coming with possibly with no 
knowledge around a particular type of test or diagnosis. And this is where communication skills as clinicians, I think, is something that is getting better. It's getting better in our in our field, but it has to be improved even more because we almost have to dumb down our, our, the way we explain things. And, and I think the reason I'm able to do it, and it's taken me years, but it's, it's because I'm dyslexic. So I've, I've, um, the only way I can understand medicine is to dumb it down, right down to a basic level. <laughs> so I would, I would laugh and say to the level of maybe a, a, a sun reader, because <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's how I read medicine. And reading papers is that's how I do it. That's how I read research. And then that's how it sticks to me, because then I know I can explain that to my patients. Exactly. And I think it's, it's almost like being a translator sometimes, isn't it, to get the right, the right message across. So thank you. Um, so that was talking about daytime TV a couple of weeks ago. So let's now have a look at what's been going on in daytime TV in the last week or so. And on Tuesday on this morning, there was Dr. Larissa Corder, and she was on to talk about endometriosis. And um, it's the second most common gynecological condition in the UK. And yet a study has shown that 62% of women would put off going to the doctor if they began to suffer from symptoms of endometriosis. Um, Dr. Larissa was explaining why going to see a primary care clinician as soon as possible was vital in getting an early diagnosis. And she went through what symptoms to look out for. And I'll post a link to the video in the show notes. Also on Tuesday, um, it was on Steph's Pack Lunch, there was Dr. Sophie Newton, and she was on um, talking about her five top tips for getting better sleep without the need for medication. And I'll post a video for her sleep hygiene measures in the show notes as well. Uh, now, Wednesday, now we covered this in the, the headlines last week. Uh, this was on Good Morning Britain. And Dr. Hilary Jones, he gave out the wrong information regarding um, healthcare professionals with HIV not being able to work, um, saying that surgeons weren't able to work if they had HIV and they weren't able to operate. Um, now, the next day, he did an apology and retracted what he said and said it was a clumsy comparison and it was, was incorrect. However, that original video with the wrong information is still on the Twitter feed of Good Morning Britain. Um, we've actually flagged it up to them via our Twitter feed and so hopefully they will take it down because obviously it's incorrect. We've also asked them why they didn't post the apology and the retraction from the next day's programme in their Twitter feed. So we'll see what's going on with that. And if you see our Boggle Docs tweet, then feel free to like it and retweet it and see if we can get a response from Good Morning Britain. Also on Wednesday, um, we had Dr. Ranj on BBC Morning Live and he was talking about his new book, which is a handbook for boys. Um, he said that he wanted to get the message out there that traditionally boys haven't heard. Um, he said that, that they haven't heard that it's okay to feel your emotions, it's okay to be vulnerable, it's okay to cry, it's okay to be down, it's okay to ask for help. He said that these messages that haven't been getting through to boys and young men um, are partly behind the unacceptably high suicide rate that we have amongst young men at the moment. So Friday, finally, uh, BBC Breakfast, and uh, there was a doctor on there. You might have heard of her, Dr. Nigat Arif. Uh, she was on and she was demonstrating how to do a lateral flow test for COVID-19. And I'll put a link to the video just in case you need to signpost um, any parents or any school-aged children to it so that they are well up to date with exactly how to do it because they're all doing them now. Um, so they might need a bit of a refresher on how to do it properly. Now then, before the main discussion with Nigat, um, we've had a voice message. So let's um, quickly go over and, and listen to what Tamsin has to say. I just wanted to say how much... Uh, I've really enjoyed listening to Boggle Docs, which I've recently found. And I just want to say thank you to Rex for writing his letter. It was really moving and has just made me cry, hence me having to say and send this message. Um, Keep Up the Fab Work is one of the most entertaining podcasts I listen to every week now. Thanks. Oh, well, thank you, Tamsin. That's so kind of you to get in touch. And of course, she's talking about Rex, who was one of our guests on um, our It's a Sin episodes. We did two of them. Um, and in the second episode, he wrote a letter back to himself um, from the future back to the past to give himself advice um, from what he's learnt. Um, so what he would tell himself if he knew what was to come um, regarding the, the AIDS crisis. Um, and those episodes are still available to listen to. So do go back and listen to them if you've not done that already. And if you want to leave us a voice message, then all you have to do is go to our social media pages. So we are at Boggle Docs on Twitter and on Instagram. And if you go to the link in the bio, press that button. It gives 
gives you a menu that you can select from and there's a button that you can press where you can leave us a voice message for the show. So anything you've heard that's moved you or anything you think we could be covering, then please, please send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, so now it's time for the main discussion on this episode, and um, I'm joined by Dr. Niget Arif, who you might know from BBC Breakfast and from This Morning, and we're going to be talking about I May Destroy You, which was a big hit for the BBC back last summer. Now, in many ways, it's one of the reasons why this podcast came into being. I had a patient who came to see me having seen episode five, and in the story, the main character, Arabella, has just started a relationship uh, with a man, and they'd agreed to wear condoms, and... Halfway through having sex, he takes the condom off and doesn't tell her. Now, initially, she doesn't really think much of this, but then she listens to a podcast episode, which basically helps her to to realise that this was completely wrong, what happened. And then it sets forward a whole chain of events, uh, which then take us to the end of the drama and its conclusion. Uh, So, Nigat, when you saw this, what did you think? It profoundly affected me because I think that in a... An environment where we have social media as prolific it is, we've got Tinder apps and we have individuals who are able to hook up very easily. Um, the issue around consent can sometimes become even more profound, something that needs to be discussed a lot. And it, the what Michaela Cole, so the, she wrote it and also obviously starred in it as well, which she did and I just found was groundbreaking and just utter genius was the fact that it was a subtlety of these little moments where is this consent or is this not consent? Um, did I say that he could take off his condom? And the fact that after, in that particular episode, he said, oh, but I, I thought you knew. I think that was the bit that got me because that's when you gaslight. And now we've got terms like gaslighting around that we never had before. And this happens on multiple occasions. So I, 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 I also um, was quite profoundly hit because I had a patient before even I May Destroy You. I remember having a Pakistani lady come and see me, had an arranged marriage and um, she fell pregnant and she was coming to see me for um, uh, just to talk about pregnancy because she was actually quite scared uh, about pregnancy and what it involved because um, she had seen her older sister die in Pakistan um, through her pregnancy. It, it, the healthcare in that's a different health sort of healthcare. So I'm very nosy as a women's health expert as well. So I said to her, "What sort of contraception do you use?" Because that's a normal part of conversation. I know she's pregnant now, but um, I wanted to just do a thorough first consultation. The first time I've met her, a history taking, and she goes, um, "I did um, talk about my to my husband about using condoms, but he wasn't really keen on using them, but." On one occasion, we did, and halfway through, he took it off. And I said, well, how did you feel about that? And she goes, I just felt I couldn't say anything because we're married. And I said, but you still have to give him permission. And she looked at me as if I was mad. She actually looked at me as if I was a crazy woman saying this to her. And I I looked at her going, but within marriage, okay, you've had an arranged marriage. Yes, you are married. But you still don't know each other. You're still getting to know each other. Your body isn't handed over to him. That's what I believe. There has to come a point where you you have to have the discussion even within marriage. And I think these are even harder to discuss. Um, yes. And they are such taboo subjects. And I know that being a Pakistani practicing Muslim woman, a GP, discussing this on this podcast is probably going to really shock some individuals because having these conversations are not easy and it might even shock someone who's thinking well this has happened to me i didn't know that i had to even ask for consent or give consent and so when i saw this episode i just thought individuals are being taken advantage of if i can use that word um even possibly coerced in a sexual act and by definition something that you do not give consent is rape because you're being that's that's something that's been done to you. Whatever way it is, you could be coerced, guilt-tripped, gaslighted into it. I know that there's a, a definition by law what is rape, but medically, do you agree with me? That must fall under the category. Yeah. I do. And I think what's been a really good thing about this drama is that it's opened up the whole conversation about consent. And just to go back to the reason why this podcast came into being. So I had a patient who was a gay man who was in a new relationship 
uh, and they'd had a conversation together and they and for all the reasons um, which we've discussed in the recent podcast about HIV and the stigma regarding that and the stigma and fear regarding AIDS and HIV he was brought up in that environment so he's used to having conversations with new partners and he basically they'd agreed that they wouldn't have unprotected sex until they both agreed they were in a loving relationship and that they had both been tested and then had a full sexual health screen so two weeks into this relationship they were having sex and his new partner took the condom off and didn't tell him. And he, he didn't feel right about it, but he didn't realise it was wrong in the eyes of the law. And then he saw, I may destroy you, and the penny dropped. And he came to see me and he was visibly shaken by the whole thing. And he kept saying to me, it's the language. The language was exactly the same. He kept saying to me, I thought you knew. And that to me really shook me up too. And it really showed me the power of TV drama and about how it can affect our patients. And it's, it's great that we're having this conversation now because it hopefully it will help us to, to prepare our primary care colleagues if they're in a similar situation. Absolutely. And I think it's the, the thing that I found um, from that also, because obviously you do reflect back on your clinical cases and you think, could I have done that better? And as GPs, you're only as good as your last consultation, <laughs> I have found. And you're only as good as, as, as your next consultation and how you will prepare that patient for maybe some of those difficult conversations. Because a patient is in, is in front of you disclosing some of the most hardest truth that they probably will never disclose anybody else. So your reaction is the most important thing. How you communicate. So if a patient comes to you, so like your patient and um, Nick, that you said he came in and said, he used the words, I thought you knew. And then it struck him, oh, my God, I've, I've been a, a victim of sexual assault. That is, and then if you as a clinician don't somehow acknowledge that, support that, that could be fundamentally far more destroying, A, as a patient-doctor relationship, but B, for that individual, because they won't probably go to anyone else for support afterwards, and they might exactly. then say that they're not going to seek help, which then festers. Exactly. And the outcome of that, as we know, something that's left and festers has detrimental effect on mental health, trust issues, um, confidence, self-esteem, depression might even form. And within men, I think sexual abuse is something that's even more taboo and so underground. And we know that we've got to be able to look at men's mental health far, far more because the rate of suicide in young men is just disproportionate. And I'm not saying that it's because of sexual assault or anything like that at all. But I'm saying that those conversations are just simply not being had enough. Exactly. And, and I think for all of those reasons, we need to be ready for our patients when they when they do come and disclose things like this too. So have we got any resources that we can refer to that would help us be ready for this kind of scenario? There's lots of different resources. Um, and But the Royal College of GPs, because obviously I'm biased in being a GP, I will refer to my own college uh, yeah. for information. Um, but they've actually put together a really good PDF. Um, it's called Rape and Sexual Assault Information for GPs. And it's a how you communicate as a clinician um, with a patient who comes in. And what they've done really well is that they've um, listed uh, a possible uh, conversation or a headline uh, that a patient might give you and then how you respond to it. So um, I'll just read really one simple thing. So a helpful reaction to disclosure. So it says here, it may be difficult for a patient to talk about what happened and they might fear not being believed. However, the part of your, your role as a clinician is to produce an atmosphere where they are believed, where they can simply break their information to you, even if they sit there in silence, and allow the disclosure to happen at the patient's pace. I think that is amazing because we've got guidance from the Royal, of Co Royal College of GPs telling us as clinicians exactly how to behave in that moment. And we, I know, are time poor and we've got 10 minutes. But it's these sort of conversations which actually you stop and time goes out the window and you go at the patient's pace, which I, I can completely appreciate because I work to a 10 minute consultation myself. It's sometimes really, really tough, but it, it, it allows it, it allows me to know that by my by my at least the college, we're supported as clinicians to say your communication is the most key thing in those moments. 
support your patients, allow them to have that space. And even if they don't say something, then you can say, I'm going to book you in for a double appointment. Come back and see me tomorrow. Leave that door open. And I think it's that first contact, and which is, which is highlighted in the RCGP reference, that, that it's, it's so important to get that right because it sets the tone for ongoing consultations and it means that they are more likely to get help, as we were saying. And I think that's actually even shown in the drama because there's um, one of them, Arabella, the new character, played by Michaela Cole, one of her friends um, is, a, is, a, is a male friend and he is sexually assaulted. And whereas he goes and reports it to the police when she's assaulted and she has a good experience with support, he has a very clunky experience um, and it, I think he actually doesn't report it in the end because it's such a difficult thing to do and they kind of doubting him and they feel like maybe he somehow he was to blame um, and it just goes to show how any kind of interaction with a professional in this situation can impact what happens next yeah and, and the great thing about um this sort of guidance by the college is is that they actually really clearly say that if a patient discloses sexual violence to you don't brush it aside as if it's unimportant you know really sort of say to acknowledge that this has happened to them Please don't gaslight them now that we know what gaslighting actually sort of behavior can happen. And, and please don't brush it aside because that lived in experience of whatever they've had is something that has to be account, accounted for because that's going to play a part in their mental health and their further ability to get over that trauma. Unfortunately, we know some of our consultations can be clunky and um, we know that some consultations don't go smoothly but leaving that door open for that individual or somehow having a, a, a guide as a doctors especially this is I'm thinking for junior doctors who are just starting out in the world on their own doing their consultations it, it, I, I found this resource really fantastic and I think when you originally tweeted about it I referred to it saying please look at this because I know how many colleagues um, actually do themselves get really anxious about having this conversation so they will possibly, because of their own fear, and as doctors, we hate admitting that we're fearful or we're scared to have a, a yeah. certain conversation, that we will, we are very good at clamping down a conversation, I think. And yeah. um, we're very good at brushing things aside. Exactly. And, and in fact, what you were just saying that I remember when I, I tweeted from the Boggle Docs Twitter account about I May Destroy You, and you noticed it and you posted and you said, this resource is amazing, which is exactly why we're having this conversation now. So I suddenly thought, wow, you'd be great to put on the documents. Um, so, so thank you. Um, but I think also it's about, you know, we, we have our training every year for um, advanced life support. Um, but we don't have training for stuff like this formally. It's what we, we do ourselves, what we look into. And I would argue that, yes, you know, ALS is hugely important because you know what to do in that emergency situation. But this is so important too. And it's almost like we need to be able to lift this off the shelf, you know, break glass in emergency and have that consultation ready to go so that we can help our patients. Um, I think mental health life support, air quotation marks, it's something that we should be having in the mainstream. And the pandemic has just shown us that well-being, which used to be seen as this fuddy-duddy, you know, hippie-ish doctors preaching about well-being. <laughs> Sorry to everyone that's listening. <laughs> 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 but it was. Do you not, did you not feel that? There was this sort of cultural belief that mental health and well-being is done by very much sort of the nouveau doctors who are like to do. Holistic medicine, I remember being a junior doctor, people used to laugh about holistic yeah. medicine. And, really? and, and you know, you talk about mindfulness through whispers. You go, I, yeah. I do mindfulness. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> exactly. There was this, this, this sort of, you know, corridor whispers of someone talking about mindfulness and then giving you this look. Or, you know, if, if, a, if a patient wanted to talk about yoga or meditation, you'd sort of look at them with, like, down your nose going, what is this? But we've realized that these are, and, and it's unless you've got clinicians like myself, like yourself, and like thousands of other clinicians who are slightly now realizing, actually, we've got to look at the body in a holistic way. It's not your head is detached from the rest of your body. There's no, that actually doesn't happen. <laughs> and no, we can resuscitate the heart, but we need to be thinking about resuscitating the brain. And, the, uh, and I think emotions is something we are just on the brink of actually trying to bring into clinical care. I don't ever remember talking about my feelings with a patient or as a doctor going to a pa going to another doctor 
um, talking about my feelings. And uh, it, it has actually, I think, taken things like the pandemic, think, talking about loneliness, talking about the fact that domestic violence is on the rise and, and anger people have, um, tearfulness, because those, when you have emotions, it's linked to weakness. We've never associated having a heart attack with weakness. Honestly, if we no. did that, emotion would be very different. Yes. Completely. And also, you know, I mean, I can only speak from my own personal experience, but, you know, I'm quite an emotional bloke. And it's always been kind of people to kind of, oh my goodness, up about that. What's, I don't know what to do now. It's a man crying. Ah. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of, you know, it's, it's lovely to, to have be in this environment now whereby actually emotions are okay and you can say how you're feeling and about how it affects you and maybe if one thing good can come out of this pandemic maybe the legacy should be that that we you know we focus on mental health and emotions are allowed and we are allowed to speak about how we feel yeah i think that there's lots of uh, the i obviously i'm not Brit- i'm not i'm pakistani but british uh, and grew up here had my medical training here but that british stiff upper lip was the the epitome of how you should behave that decorum is what you should be showing the public and what you should be showing indoors as well. And that facade has just been broken, absolutely broken, because we know that that doesn't work, that that uh, ability to brush things under the carpet, well, that carpet is going to turn into the size of the Himalayan mountains because... <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. It's very lumpy. It's <laughs> <laughs> very lumpy and I can't walk on it. And, and I think that having individuals um, now come on TV and social media, I mean, I often, it was really sweet of you to say that I always put positivity on things. But honestly, that's something that people have attacked me, used as a tool to attack me on social media, you know, that I'm wearing rose tinted, I'm very positive when actually it's all doom and gloom outside. And it's not that I haven't shown my emotions. When I'm frustrated, I will show it on BBC Breakfast and say, this is really something that's frustrating. But the thing is, is that um, the fear element of showing any sort of emotion, fear, etc., that has to be taken out of that um, and it only means allowing, you know, it's, it makes me so happy, the fact that you said that you're an emotional guy, because that that just, I find that so endearing. Oh, well, you know, if we watch the drama together, I would literally, whatever it is, I would end up in tears about something. <laughs> no, I have lots of tissues. <laughs> <laughs> You can see how, how people sometimes wouldn't know how to deal with that. Um, and, and it is refreshing now to be able to even have this conversation with you about you know, the fact that, that we do have emotions. Um, and I think also what makes it more powerful, I think it, it feels that it's, we're, we're allowed to be show that we are vulnerable. And I think that's quite powerful. And I think what you were just saying about how sometimes, you know, when you are showing that you're frustrated about something, because you're positive most of the time, if you are frustrated, that makes that much more powerful because it lands home. Um, and I also think that, that perhaps the people that are on social media attacking you for that, it says a lot more about them than it does about you. Yeah, and uh, social media, I think, is a double-edged sword. You're, you're the toast of the town one day, and then the next day, that's it. It's a, it's a flip of a coin. So I, I, do take, I, I don't take it seriously, and you have to sort of absolutely take it with a pinch of salt. But it comes back to the fact that... Um, you can you will you can't be allow that to mar your judgment when it comes to my clinical consultations if a patient wants to come in and or even on the phone now because a lot of it is by phone and video and i still have in fact yesterday i did a full clinic and a lot of it was mental health they'll say i'm so sorry for crying i'm so sorry i, I don't want to cry i'm so sorry for crying and i say to them hang on if you don't cry with me who are you else who else are you going to cry with and um, I always I always make a joke because I'm a quite a jovial person anyway. And I think that was, it's an icebreaker because, like I just said to you, I have lots of tissues. And my the walls in my room where I consult, it's this horrible pale yellow because that's typical NHS <laughs> clinic, isn't it? Um, so I always say the reason that my walls are so yellow is because, uh, you know, I have lots of people just sitting here and crying. <laughs> um, nice. And so it's... It, I think it's nice to be able to make light of the fact that tears is a good thing. Don't hide them. Don't apologize for them. Get it out of your system. Let's then then move on, talk about it, because then I can then formulate a plan. And I'm a woman who loves a plan. So having a plan, yeah, plans are good. Having a plan, this is what we're going to do. Whatever is upsetting you, this is what you're going to do. This is what I'm going to do. And then we'll touch base in a couple of days. And I think that is 
the key of how general practice and primary care works. And that's where you get those sort of that sweet spot between a good patient doctor relationship. Yeah. And just to finish off, if you were to find yourself welling up and getting emotional with a patient, is there anything that you do to take the edge off that so that you don't end up crying with the patient? So have you got any techniques for that? Oh my God, Nick, I've cried so many times with my patients. I, I don't, I have cried with my patients. Um, before the pandemic, I would hug my patients. You can't help but get totally involved with some patients that come your way because their stories are depressingly, depressingly sad. And I think that I'm, I'm definitely not made out of stone. Um, and, and I have become far more emotional, far more loving because, and I dare I say it since I've had kids because I'm so, I can't, like if I see a mum who's had a stillbirth, that gets me. Oh, um, had a patient who, who had just, tried so hard and they got up to eight and a half months in their pregnancy and then the baby's heart stopped um and so she still had to give labor and still had to deliver her little boy and I still refer to his name when I see them um and I couldn't help but cry because I'm I I had I it was just heartbreaking when a patient when a 36 year old mum with two kids and I'm a mum who's got three kids I have to give her the diagnosis of breast cancer, which is probably stage four. How can I not cry? Because those are life-changing, devastating diagnoses, which even I know that they're probably not going to have a good outcome. And I think that that actually just humanizes you a little bit with your patients. But also, that's my way of coping with my mental health as a clinician, because we equally suffer for our vocation. I always say being a doctor, you're a doctor for life, <laughs> unless you do something really bad. <laughs> but, no, I'm joking, I'm joking. but you're, you are like, I can't, especially where I am, lots of people know me um, and my community members know me. So even if I'm in Sainsbury's, invariably it's always where the cottage cheese aisle is. And they'll say, I've got some sort of rash or discharge. <laughs> but, you'll always be a doctor and you'll always be asked a question and it's hard to switch that off and again that is something that we need to be talking a lot more about in uh, and the the conversations are happening you know the mental health the PTSD our clinician colleagues suffer from um, that is becoming more to the forefront but it took a pandemic for that to happen Um, so for me if I cry with my patients it allows me to deal with that moment there and then with them because if I do it later on in quiet, and sometimes I've done that, sometimes on my car journey home, it takes me about 25 minutes from my work to come home. And that's actually my de-stressing time. And I've, over the years, I've learned to park my patients. So when I park my car, my patients are parked. Because for years and years and years, my patients, would I would dream about them. I would think about them. I would bring them home with me. Um, I would have conversations with myself because my husband is not a doctor so he hates having conversations about medicine and it took a senior partner of mine to say to me you're a fantastic doctor but you're going to burn out and you're not going to be the doctor that you want to be and that was the wake-up call for me to think oh my gosh I've got to change the way I am as a clinician and this is a learning process that I'm still on I still bring patients home with me I still, I still do that. There are one or two that just love to hang on, don't they? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean, but it is important to decompress. And I think exactly what you were saying, that this whole thing about about self-care, particularly now, because we've all had a horrendous year and we need to be aware of that and we need to self-care so we can keep going because this is a marathon, what we're going through. So there we go. Thank you, Nigat, for coming in and talking to us about I May Destroy You and for all the the different conversations that 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 led on to afterwards. And also thank you for everything that you're doing out in the big wide world to help to educate the patient population to make all of our lives easier. Thank you so much. You take care. Look after yourself. Bye. And we've got some great resources to signpost you to uh, this week, and um, they're all in the show notes. Uh, so just to run through a few of them now, um, particularly there's the tea and consent video. Have a look at that. It's absolutely brilliant, and it really brings it home to you um, how to get the message across about 
consent. Um, there's also the RCGP uh, links that we talked about with Nigat, and um, also there's a BJGP article as well. Um, there's also a link to the um, UK Says No More website, which is um, where you can go to find your local SARC centre, um, if you don't know where that is, um, which is a sexual assault referral centre. Um, and also that has got a list of um, or how you can to find safe places near you. So that's people that need to find safe places. Um, so that's um, worth having a look at as well. And it might be an action point from the podcast to actually make some time now or or soon uh, to actually just run through a scenario of what you would do if a patient came into you and disclosed to you that they'd been raped or assaulted um, and how you would get them the help and how you do access the, the local um, SARC and all that kind of stuff as well. Um, there's also the, the website for the Survivors Trust, um, which is an umbrella organisation of people that have been sexually assaulted um, and that's um, very useful too. So that's all on there as well. And the Survivors Trust free helpline is... Um, 08088 010818. That's 08088010818. Uh, so that is um, all in the show notes as well. And if you head over to the Buzzsprout site, uh, then you can click on all the links um, to all the resources that we have just talked about. And the easiest way is to go to, if you just go to Google and type in um, Buzzsprout Boggle Docs, um, or you can go over to our social media pages and click on the link in the bio. And we are at Boggle Docs on Instagram and on Twitter. And then the other thing that you can do if you click on the link in the bio is to leave us a voice message telling us about anything that you've heard or seen um, or you think that we should be covering um, or you can leave us a message about something that you've heard on Boggle Docs as well. Um, so that's about it from us for this week. Uh, thank you to Tamsin for leaving us a voice message and also thanks again to Nigat for coming on. Um, so will our patients be worried about the fact that they have alcoholic liver disease, fatty liver disease? Um well, with such vague symptoms that's been flagged up in the article, maybe they could possibly be worried about it. Um, could they have seen um, the piece about endometriosis on this morning and be sort of seeking help as they've been advised to do? Quite possibly. Or might they have watched I May Destroy You and be concerned that they have been the victim of a sexual assault? I'm Nick Kendrew and you can find me on Twitter at Nick Kendrew. That's N-I-K-K-E-N-D-O-W. Until next time, take care and look after yourself. Goodbye. If you've been affected by what we've been talking about today, I'm so sorry. Here's the Survivors Trust helpline again. It's 08088 010 818.